Luke chapter 15, 14, excuse me, beginning at verse 15. Now, when one of those who sat at the table with him heard these things, he said to them, Blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. If you remember previously in Luke chapter 14, we saw this the last time we were together. In Luke chapter 14, there was this incident where Jesus was invited over to the home of one of the ruler of the Pharisees. And Jesus went to this home and he was enjoying the dinner, but they sort of planted a man there who was afflicted expecting that Jesus would heal him. And it was actually a test for Jesus. We know this especially because the text tells us that they watched him intently or suspiciously is the idea in the original language. So they're watching Jesus with great suspicion, with real monitoring him to see what he's going to do because they wanted to see if he would heal this man who was ill and if he would do it on the Sabbath because that's the day when the dinner was being held. Well, Jesus healed the man. Then Jesus spoke to them about some of their hypocrisy and some of their pride. But when we come to verse 15, they're still at the dinner. And by the way, after some of the things that Jesus said, you can imagine, that's a pretty awkward dinner, don't you think? I mean, we've had a couple very awkward dinner parties that Jesus has enjoyed in the Gospel of Luke. And this is certainly one of them. It's just sort of an awkward situation where Jesus was very bold to confront them with some of their sin and with some of their pride, but he still gathered together them. And you have the sense, or at least I have the sense there in verse 15, of a guy just kind of trying to break the tension of the moment. Maybe Jesus had just said something, or maybe there was something unrecorded that somebody said in response. And the tension of it all just sort of hang in the air. And you know how that can happen when people are gathered together. And so at least in my mind, this man just ventures forth, and what does he say? He said to him, blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. Now, that's a pretty non-controversial remark, don't you think? It will be a blessing to eat bread in the kingdom of God. You see, what this man has in mind is a theme that's very important throughout the Old Testament and extending into the New Testament well, the idea of what we call the messianic banquet. In the New Testament, particularly in the book of Revelation, it's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. And since in the Jewish mindset, the greatest party ever was a wedding reception, they considered that the kingdom of God, that being in heaven, that being united with God and the Messiah there in the heavenly realms, it was going to be like the greatest party forever just going on. And that's why they had this idea of the marriage supper of the Lamb or of the banquet of the Messiah or whatever you would want to call it. You know, this is why it says in the book of Revelation, chapter 19, verse 9, Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's the same idea that this man is referencing to. Now, in response to that, Jesus gives a parable. And I just find it kind of interesting. This man, at least in my mind, he's trying to kind of cut the tension of an awkward moment. And Jesus won't let it off the tension point. I guess, and you know, I hadn't really thought of saying this, but I, I suppose it's an applicable kind of thing. You know, sometimes we have in our mind that Jesus' purpose is to always relieve us of stress or tension. You know, that's not always the case, is it? Sometimes we desperately want to be relieved from some tension or stress in our life that God has a very important purpose for. And so if this man was trying to sort of lighten the thing or redirect the conversation into something that he thought was utterly uncontroversial... Who's going to, you know, say, no, it's not blessed to be invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb or whatever. No, that's not it. But now notice what Jesus says in response, starting at verse 16. Then he said to him, 
A certain man gave a great supper and invited many, and sent his servant at supper time to say to those who were invited, Come, for all things are now ready. But they all with one accord began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a piece of ground and I must go and see it. I ask you to have me excused. And another said, I have brought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to test them. I ask that you have me excused. Still another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So here in this little parable that Jesus gives to this invited dinner party, there's a whole dinner party, it's in response to this man's statement, blessed is he, you know, who eats bread in the kingdom to come, or whatever it was exactly he said there, back in verse 15, he said, blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. In response, Jesus gives a parable about a man who gives a great supper and he invites many people. Now, in that day and age, it was very common, and you can just imagine what a huge undertaking it was to give a proper feast in those days. You couldn't just call out and cater it. You you couldn't just go down to the supermarket. I mean, it was a huge undertaking just logistically to arrange such a thing. So in the midst of all of this, this is how it was common to do it. You would send out invitations for the event long before, weeks before, maybe months before. But the actual time of the dinner wasn't determined until that very day because it depended on when you got everything ready. And so it was very common. You were invited. Okay, you accept the invitation. But then on that day, you know there's somebody going to come walking through the village and say, hey, now's the time for the feast. Come on over to it. So I want you to see in the story that Jesus tells, you have the story of a man who invites people and they accept the first invitation. But when it comes time to actually say, come, now all things are ready. Come on, the food is served. Then what do they do? They begin to make excuses. But notice what it said first in verse 17. Come for all things are ready. Now was the time. You've saved the date, right? We do that now in our modern culture, the save the date cards. I don't know why they never had that kind of thing when I was younger, but now everybody does that. So you save the date, but it wasn't until the very date itself that was, now's the time, all things are ready, come, it's time to eat the supper. So this is what they did. But notice, verse 18, sort of a shocking statement, but they all with one accord began to make excuses. You see, central to this parable are the excuses that were offered. The excuses are different, but actually they're all the same. And that's why it says there in verse 18, they all with one accord began to make excuses. And isn't that just the character of excuses? They're different, but they're all the same. You make your excuses and you think your excuse is so creative, so new, so different to yourself, but actually it's just like every lame excuse you've ever made in your life. It's just a diversion to what you really don't want to say with your own heart. Now, I want you to notice this, too. It says there in verse 18, and we use the phrasing, and the text uses that phrasing, excuses are made. They all, with one accord, began to make excuses. Think about that. We make excuses. We fashion them with our hands. We mold them. We shape them into just the sort of form that we want them to be. They're made out of convenience. They're clung to in desperation. But let me tell you something. Hope doesn't really begin until the excuses end. 
As long as a person keeps making excuses for this or that in their life and never really reckon with the real fact of the matter, you're never going to go anywhere. No, hope can really begin for your life right here, right now, but only if the excuses will end. Now, the excuses that they made begin to ask, or excuse me, begin to answer a very um, critical question in our own day and age. You see, the excuses explain why such a wonderful invitation was accepted. Excuse me, was rejected, was, was gotten out of. Now, I just want you to think about it in this terms. In that ancient day and age, there was hardly anything more wonderful than going to a great big feast and being able to feast on amazing food as much as you wanted to. Again, in our modern world, it just doesn't impact us the same way. We might be stoked to go to a great banquet or dinner or something like that. But for them in the ancient world, it was even higher lifted up in their conception. And I think that Jesus' listeners, as they listened to this, they said, how crazy is that to not want to go to such a wonderful thing? Why would anybody ever refuse such a great invitation? Now, friends, don't people say the same thing about Christianity today? As a matter of fact... I know some people who basically reject Christianity and they reject Christianity based on this logic. They say, if Christianity was so true and so right, then more people would accept it. Have you ever heard that line of thinking? How can it be true if so many people reject it? How can it be true if so many people who seem to be really smart reject it? It's the same way with this invitation. Let me tell you something. There was nothing wrong with this dinner that they were invited to. Every part of it was good. Every part of it was freely given. All they had to do was receive. Then why didn't they do it? Well, they didn't do it because they just wanted to make excuses. And look at their excuses in verses 18 and 19. The first excuse, I bought a piece of ground and I got to go see it. I don't know a lot about the real estate business. You know, I'm not a savvy operator, but I don't think that that's the smart way to go about it, to buy a piece of land and then go see it. I I don't know. (laughs) Secondly, I bought five yoke of oxen, and I got to go test them or prove them. Five yoke of oxen is a substantial investment. Shouldn't you go check them out before you buy them? And then he's noticed the third one, verse 20, I've married a wife. The third excuse has to do with a man who just seems to put his family before everything and say, no, I can't come to your feast because, I don't know, maybe my wife doesn't want to go. I don't care about it because I've just married a wife. I don't know exactly what it was, but whatever it was, the marital relationship he felt made him unable to make this feast. As a matter of fact, he says there in verse 20, if you notice, the first two objectors said, I ask that you have me excused. The third objector said what? Flatly said, I cannot come. It's almost like, I don't want to hear any more of this. I can't come, so don't keep asking me. That's it. It's settled. That's all there is to it. Now notice, what's the reaction of the man who's giving the feast? Was his reaction something like this? All right, feast's off. They don't want to come. We're just going to, you know, end it. Are you kidding me? He's prepared the whole feast. All things are ready. Look at what he says here, verse 21. 
So that servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house, being angry, said to his servants, Go out quickly into the streets and bring the lames of the city and bring in there the poor, the maimed, and the lame, and the blind. And the servant said, Master, it is done as you commanded, and there's still room. Then the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and the hedges and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. For I say to you that none of those men who were invited shall taste my supper. Think about what an amazing thing this is. I mean, you can imagine it in one of the, you know, fancy ballrooms in a hotel in our own city. And there were all these people invited. It was supposed to be the great gathering or party or whatever you want to call it, the feast, the banquet of the year. But many of them just forget it. I'm not coming. And the ballroom's empty. And there's all this food and there's all this celebration to be had. And they say, I just want you to go out and get everybody. Go, go get the halfway houses. Go, go, go out to the recovery homes. Go over to the rescue mission. Get everybody you can. And they get everybody who will come. And they, but it's still not enough. Then the master of the feast says, no, I just want you to bring in whoever will actually respond to the invitation and not make excuses. You bring them in because I am not going to let this great feast that I have prepared go to waste. I want you to notice something. Verse 21 tells us that the master was angry. It was strange. It was offensive that so many people would make excuses when they were given such a wonderful invitation. And so he commanded them to go out and bring as many in. And if it didn't work in the one try, go out and do another try and bring them in in two waves. Finally, he says this in verse 23. Did you see that? Compel them to come in that my house may be filled. I just want you to know something, that if we take this parable as a reflection of the heart of God the Father, which obviously it is. I mean, that's why Jesus told this. God is absolutely determined that his house will be filled. And he's going to bring people in. The, the book of Revelation tells us so, that around his throne are numbered an innumerable multitude from every tribe, tongue, and language all across the earth. It's going to be a glorious multitude there, and his house is going to be filled. And if people want to make excuses, fine. You're not going to take away from the glory of God on that day. His house, his feast is going to be fulfilled. And that's exactly what we learn here by analogy. But notice what it says there in verse 23 compel them to come in. You see, Jesus said compel to indicate God's great desire to fulfill the feast because those wanderers and outcasts needed to be convinced that they were welcome, that they would be compelled by love. Can you imagine how this would go? Come to the great feast, settled in this beautiful place and all this great food, and this outcast, this man who's maimed or lame or blind or whatever it is, he gets his, no, you don't want me there, do you? No, we really want you there. No, I don't believe it. And sometimes you just have to compel them. You grab the man almost by his shirt. Yes, you're wanted. Come, this is for you. The food is good. The table is set. All things are ready. Come to the feast. And that beautiful, powerful persuasion by love to compel people by that wonderful, uh, eloquent, you must come because this is for you. That's a beautiful and a powerful thing. Now, I have to admit, tragically, this verse has been misinterpreted and misapplied in the history of Christianity and has actually done a great deal of damage. One of the early church theologians named Augustine and other people after him, they used this phrase, compel them to come in, to justify 
coercing people into Christianity and sometimes using persecution and torture. Honestly, when you read about the terrible things that that, that misguided and, and unfaithful people did in the Middle Ages, torturing people, killing people, imprisoning people, afflicting people in the name of Christianity. They usually did it based on a misinterpretation of this verse. They said, well, look, Jesus said, compel them to come in. So if I compel you to come in at the point of a sword, well, I'm just fulfilling Jesus' command. No, never. How somebody could build such a wretched practice on such a misguided interpretation is almost beyond our thinking. William Barclay says this, it was taken as a command to coerce people into the Christian faith. It was used as a defense of the Inquisition, the thumbscrew, the rack, the threat of death and imprisonment, the campaigns against heretics, all those things which are the shame of Christianity. No, instead, the idea is to compel them, but in the way that God always compels, to compel them by love. And I want us to be energetic in going after people to bring them into the feast. I want us to be persistent with them. I want us to use every power of persuasion and compulsion, but the compulsion of love. And never, never would we countenance advancing the kingdom of God through violence of any kind whatsoever. Well, I think that was a very powerful moment at that feast, don't you? Supposedly now at the end of verse 24, we move away from the feast and now Jesus and other disciples, excuse me, and those who are following him, I should say, are on their way to Jerusalem, continuing on the way. Verse 25, now great multitudes went with him and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. That's pretty radical, don't you think? But please look at the context here, verse 25. Now great multitudes went with him. The feast is over, but at least in Luke's mind, very fresh on Luke's mind, is the parable that Jesus just sold us that was telling us, That receiving the kingdom of God, entering into the kingdom of God, was like receiving an invitation. So this is very much on the mind as Jesus continues on his way to Jerusalem. And great multitudes are on the way. And Jesus turns and says to those great multitudes, look at it again here in verses 26 and 27. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. That's a pretty radical statement. You cannot be my disciple unless you do certain things. Now, what's a disciple? Let me remind you that that word disciple has as its basic meaning to be a learner a student, but not necessarily just a learner in a classroom, but a learner in life. I'm not saying that it has no academic aspect to it. It does have an academic aspect to it, but it goes beyond the academic to also the learning of a life. 
to be someone's disciple, to be someone's learner after them. And Jesus is saying, if you want to be my disciple, if you want to be counted among my followers, you see, I want you to understand, these people were following Jesus on the way to Jerusalem. But he turns to this great multitude and he says, you people are my followers, but not all of you are my disciples. Let me give you a measuring line to distinguish between people who are just sort of vague or distant followers and those who are truly disciples. Now, why was this important to say? Again, I want you to understand that the way that Luke has arranged this. We should never think that coming to the kingdom of God is only like receiving an invitation. Receiving an invitation, like to a great banquet? Yeah, I'll do that. Show up at the banquet? Sure. Now Jesus is going to clarify this and say, yes, coming after me, it certainly begins with receiving invitation. There's no doubt about it. Here's the invitation, but it doesn't end there. To be a disciple means a surrender of life and a commitment of life that one must take very seriously. Verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and his children, his brothers and sisters, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus boldly said that the true disciple comes to him without reservation, serving Jesus first. And all other relationships in life take a back seat are of lower priority than faithfulness and obedience to Jesus. Friends, this is pretty radical. Now, first of all, nobody should think for a moment that Jesus was commanding people to hate, for example, their father and mother. Christianity is a religion of love, not hate. Jesus never hated his father and mother. So what is Jesus getting at here? Again, I think he's very boldly and very starkly setting these two things side by side so that we would look at it and say there is a comparison. My love for Jesus must be so great that set beside it in comparison, one could even say that I don't care for my parents at all because my love for Jesus is so great. Now, you and I know this, and Jesus knows it as well, that when a person is a sold-out follower of Jesus, that it'll make them a better child, a better husband a better father or mother. And it's very rare, at least in our Western culture, for somebody to have to make that decision. Do I follow Jesus or do I follow my family? But let me tell you something. In many parts of the world today, that is a very difficult decision for people to make. I think about the tyranny that rules over so much of the Muslim world today. And let me tell you what that tyranny is. That tyranny is a death sentence upon people who leave Islam and embrace Christianity or any other religion. And let me just say this. It's a pretty sorry religion that has to keep people in line with a death sentence. And it's just wrong. Now listen, I know that there are what people call moderate Muslims who speak out against this. All I can say is their voices should be louder and louder. And they should openly decry anybody who would put a fatwa or a condemnation or a death sentence upon somebody. And I tell you this as well. If that were truly understood in the Muslim world, if you please, you can leave Islam and become a Christian and there will be no repercussions. Can you imagine the hundreds of thousands, if not millions, that would immediately leave Islam and come to the Christian faith? 
They are only held in it by death threats and threats of physical violence. But God bless those who have the courage to say, though it means my family may reject me, I choose Jesus Christ. Now, you have to admit, this was an audacious demand. None of the prophets, none of the apostles asked for such a personal commitment and devotion. Jesus said, hey, it's either me or your family. Could you imagine Isaiah saying that? Uh, David, Abraham, Moses, never, never in a thousand years would they say such a thing. This shows us that Jesus was no mere prophet. He was not just an apostle. Jesus is God himself. And if Jesus were not God, for him to make a claim as this would be encouraging people to idolatry. But no, he makes this very audacious claim. And he says, no, you must follow me. And you know what just stirs my heart with appreciation is to realize that how many people in this world today give such allegiance to Jesus Christ. It is said that there are some 2 billion people on the face of the earth today under the heading of Christian. Now, I don't think for a moment that all of those 2 billion are actually born again, are actually regenerated by the Spirit of God, but I believe a good proportion of them, and I'm not even going to estimate what the proportion might be, but I don't hesitate for a moment to say there are millions upon millions of people today who would lay down their life for Jesus Christ if necessary. If push came to shove, if it came a choice between their family rejecting them and faithfulness to Jesus, as difficult as it might be, they would say, no, Jesus comes first in my life. Napoleon understood this principle. That French emperor said this. He said, I know men and I tell you that Jesus Christ is no mere man. Between him and every other person in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. Alexander the Great, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I have founded empires. But on what did we rest the creations of our genius? Upon force. Jesus Christ founded his empire upon love. And this hour, millions of men would die for him. And it's true to this present day. Now, when Jesus repeatedly says, you have to hate your family, you have to hate your mother, father, brother, and notice how he concluded it there in verse 26, where he said, and does not hate his own life. You see, we see repeatedly in the scriptures that Jesus established a way of love and not hate. Yet Jesus used this very strong word to show the difference and what the difference must be between our allegiance to Jesus and our allegiance to everything else. And this is a very strong word. But if it could get stronger, it does in verse 27. I'm sorry, we, we don't go down a notch at verse 27. We go up a notch. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, please remember this, friends. Jesus spoke this to a great multitude of people who were following him or accompanying him on his way to Jerusalem. He spoke this out to the great multitude. And as he spoke it, I just imagine the faces on people just being astounded, amazed. First of all, Jesus, you ask for such personal... You want me to love you more than my own parents? Astounding! 
But then he says this. Then he says, what? I'll read it again. Verse 27. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Notice first he said, whoever. He said this to the entire. He didn't say this to a few spiritual elite. Okay, there's a few super spiritual people among you. You know, I'm saying this to you. No, he said, whoever. It applies to everybody. And what must they do? Verse 27. Bear his cross and come after me. I find it fascinating that Jesus said something very similar to this to all his disciples in Luke chapter 9, verse 23. But now he says it to the multitude. And let me say this. It probably horrified his listeners when he said this. As Jesus spoke these words, probably everybody knew exactly what he meant. Because in the Roman world, before a man died on a cross, he carried a cross or at the very least, the horizontal beam of the cross. He carried it to his place of execution. When the Romans crucified a criminal, they didn't just hang him on a cross. First, they hung a cross on him. And they said, you've got to carry this to the place of execution. And everybody knew this. Everybody knew that carrying a cross always led to death. You know, when I was a boy, I, don't, I think the guy might be alive. But I don't think he's around. This fellow named Arthur Blessed. Now, those of you in my generation, you'll recognize that name, Arthur Blessed. And he had a cross that he would carry around for evangelism. Now, I don't know. I'm not going to say anything one way or another about Arthur Blessed. I just remember seeing these pictures and these video of him carrying this cross. He had a little wheel on the back of it, too. And he was carrying the cross. And we had a conversation starter, whatever. But look, let me tell you something. Whatever you want to say about Arthur Blessed and what he did, he didn't carry a cross to die. That's the only reason you carried a cross in the ancient world, was to die. You didn't carry a cross for exercise. You didn't carry a cross for spiritual image. The cross said one thing, unrelenting death. That's all it was about. You see, they knew. They knew that if anyone took up his cross, they never came back. It was a one-way journey. I'll tell you one thing you would never see. You would never see anybody carrying a cross away from a place of execution. They only went one way to the place of execution. You'll notice as well, Jesus says there in verse 27, his cross. He didn't say the cross or a cross. It's as if he personalizes it. His cross. Whatever a cross is in an individual life, It's suited for whatever they are and whatever God knows that they specifically need to die to in your life. And friends, this just confronts us. It's Honestly, isn't this like a a pail of cold water in our face? God just kind of confronting you and I, all of us together, saying, what do you need to die to? What needs to die in your life? And this is what he says when he says, take up his cross and notice, and come after me in verse 27. And come after me. Jesus made it clear that if you picked up your cross and started, you would be following after him. Because Jesus right then was literally on his way to Jerusalem to die on a cross. He says, you're going the same way I am. I know exactly what this is. I know what it's about. And this is following Jesus at its simplest. He carried a cross, so his followers must carry one. He walked to his self-death. And so must those who would follow him. And he says, if you don't, verse 27, 
You cannot be my disciple. Friends, this is something very confronting to us when sometimes we tend to minimize the price that people must pay in following Jesus Christ. Sometimes we we try to, you know, make it a little too soft. And we shouldn't be afraid to make it bold and to say, look, this is all that Jesus asks of you. He continues on that exact theme. Look at it here, starting in verse 28. For which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it, lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going to make war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to meet who comes against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Wow. Jesus says in there in verse 28, sit down and first count the cost. And he likened following him to be like this. Notice the two examples it gives. Building and battling. It's like building something. And by the way, a building project is difficult, isn't it? It's exhausting. It seems to take everything out of you. Building and battle. If there's only thing that takes more out of you than building, it's probably battling. And he says, on both cases, you better count the cost before you go in. If you're going to be my follower, you better count the cost. And remember, Jesus is saying this to the whole multitude, not just to a few chosen disciples. He's saying it to everybody. Count the cost if you're going to be my follower. And then he says very boldly there in verse verse 33, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. The idea behind the ancient Greek words that are translated, forsake all that he has, is to say goodbye to. Isn't that beautiful? Say goodbye to. Say goodbye to the self-life. Say goodbye to your own way. And embrace God's way. Let me tell you the problem. The problem is, is that many people come to Jesus and they want something of Jesus. But basically is what they want is they want Jesus to be an actor in their story. Okay, I've got my story. I've got my life. I got my story, I got my plan. Look, I've written out the script. Here's the script, Jesus. It's all great. And Jesus, guess what? You get a very important part. You get one of the best parts in the whole thing. So here, no, okay, Jesus, now you do your part, you know, just like this. And they think they're doing Jesus a favor by saying, Jesus, you can have one of the leading roles. You do it good enough, I'll give you an Oscar. You can be best supporting actor. But then again, when you're writing the script and it's your show, who's the star of your show? You, me, do you understand what it really is to be a follower of Jesus? It's to take that script that you've written for your own life, rip it up and say, here it is, Jesus. You give me the script. I want to be a player in your drama. I'm not going to insist that you be a player in mine. And you know what's beautiful about that? Is that when Jesus shows you the script that he has for your life, you read over, this fits. 
This fits for who I am and what I want to be and how you've made me. You know me better than I know myself. And these things that I've always known that I've wanted to be good at and aspire to and do. Lord, you see it, you work it, you fit it all together. But it's that fundamental attitude of surrender and submission that says, Jesus, I rip up the script for my own life. And here it is. Live your life. I'm going to follow your script. And you're the director. You're everything. So, friends, it's. That's a big deal, isn't it, that we have to count the cost. All right, let's just read the last couple of verses here. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor the dunghill, but men throw it out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. In other words, <laughs> the Christian life is only worth living when it's at its full flavor. You know, I, Those who are most satisfied in the Christian life and following after Jesus are those who give themselves to it the most fully. And if the Christian life seems dissatisfying or disillusioning or something to you, I would just ask, it's time for you to invest more of you in following Jesus Christ, not less. Now, you would think that after all these stern demands to the great multitude that followed Jesus, that it would say... And everybody left him and said goodbye. Count the cost, die to myself, hate my family, on and on. Forget this. Can I just read you? We're not going to talk about it. I'm just going to read it. Verse 1 of chapter 15. Then all the tax collectors and sinners drew near to him to hear him. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that beautiful? We think we turn people away by presenting the requirements and the demands of the gospel uh, in their full strength. We don't turn people away. There's something that resonates in the soul of man that says, yes, this is what I've made for. This is what God has created me for. And you know what? Everything that he demands from me, he demands out of love. I can serve a God like that. I can follow a Savior like that. He'll be my Savior. You know, we should count the cost, should we not? But I also want you to do this. Don't just count the cost of following Jesus. Also count the cost of rejecting Jesus. Is there not a price to to pay for following Jesus? Absolutely there is. There is a price to pay for your life for being a true disciple of Jesus Christ. You know the only thing worse? is not following Jesus Christ because that price to pay is far worse. Count the cost on both ends of the equation and you'll say, yes, Jesus, I want to be your disciple. Father, that's our prayer. We pray that you make us people, Lord. I'm bold enough to pray that this room would be filled, Lord, that all the people here, Lord, that we would be true disciples, Lord, I don't care about statistical probabilities that would say, oh, some percentage of everybody here tonight, they're not going to be true disciples. No, forget that, Lord. I pray that you'd move on every person's heart tonight and persuade us to true, sincere discipleship. Persuade me. Show me, Lord, what I need to hate in my life. Show me, Lord, where I have to pick up my cross and follow you. Show me, Lord, where I need to count the cost. Lord, I pray that you do the same work in everybody here tonight. 
We love you and we praise you. We thank you for your word. And Jesus, we thank you, Jesus, for loving us enough to speak to us directly. In Jesus' name, amen.